Our Infinitely Loved podcast. I'm Sam. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Koos. We believe that loving yourself is the key to transforming every aspect of your life. And it's our hope that these conversations bring you one step closer towards embracing this truth. In today's episode of You Are Infinitely Loved, we are chatting with the amazing Susan Piver. Susan is a New York Times bestselling author of nine books, a meditation teacher, a speaker, and a longtime Buddhist practitioner. She runs the largest virtual mindfulness community in the world, the Open Heart Project, which has more than 30,000 members. We got to talk to Susan about her latest book, The Four Noble Truths of Love, and the beautiful wisdom she shares about intimate relationships and how this intersects with self-love. We also have fun chatting to her about the Enneagram, which is a great tool for gaining a better understanding of ourselves and others. Susan is incredibly wise, insightful, and kind, and we are so grateful for everything she shared with us. We hope you enjoy this episode as much as we enjoyed learning from Susan. Welcome to this week's episode of You Are Infinitely Loved. We are absolutely thrilled to have the incredible Susan Piver with us today. I first became aware of Susan's work back in 2012 when Susan was interviewed in a video series on Jonathan Field's Good Life Project. And that particular video was a super, super inspiring interview for me. And I absolutely loved finding out about Susan's life, the serendipitous nature of it and all of the kind of crazy paths uh, that, that she followed. And after that interview, I became really fascinated uh, with Susan's work. And so I bought uh, The Hard Questions, which was a book of hers that became a huge New York Times bestselling book uh, and led to her being on Oprah. And it is a book that I continue to buy and give to lots and lots of my friends who are in relationships and very unsure about what it is that they want from these relationships. And I say, here, here are some questions for you to ask. So uh, your work has really, really impacted me in a positive way. And your latest book, The Four Noble Truths of Love, is so exceptional. So I am super excited to speak to you more about that today and the ways in which uh, self-love and love in intimate relationships are connected. I think it's going to be yeah, a really great exploration. So thank you for being with us today. Oh, my pleasure. I, I am looking forward to having the conversation. So, Susan, for our listeners that aren't familiar with you, could you tell us a little bit about your story and your path towards becoming a meditation teacher, becoming who you are today? Yeah, I'm just, I, I'm thinking, where, where would one start? Um, <laughs> I, I guess I could say that everything that's happened in my life, I sort of fell into backwards. So it's not like I had a plan and I executed it. It's but I was always interested in uh, the spiritual life from when I was a little girl. And, you know, one day, a long time ago, it's got to be more than 25 years ago now, I was reading a book called The Heart of the Buddha by someone named Chogyam Trungpa. I'd never heard of any of these things. I didn't know there was even a difference between Buddhism and Hinduism. I, didn't, I, knew no, I literally knew nothing. But I liked the title, The Heart of the Buddha. And I, I read something, and I'm paraphrasing, that said, the only possible spiritual path is your experience. 
The only mm-hmm. possible spiritual path is your life. As opposed to your belief system or your values or your, or even your actions, it's you're on it right now. This is it. And for whatever reason, in that moment, it, it that was like a thunderbolt moment. I remember being very struck by that and thinking, "Wow, that I must be a Buddhist because that's the first thing I ever heard that made sense." And that sort of started me on my path from that that reading. I love that. Um, and as someone that I'm now living in Thailand, so I'm becoming a little bit more familiar with Buddhism, and it certainly is one of those. Um, it seems very practical in its application to, yeah, as a spiritual path, it just seems full of a lot of practicality, which appeals. Yeah, it's about how to live this life, one could say, as opposed to how to get to another place or after your life, what might happen, or it's really about how to be here. It's not about how to get anywhere. Mm. So I, I find that really inspiring. Mm. One of the things that um, I would love to talk to you about is you mentioned it in your book, and I know you've described the Open Heart Project in this way, is that you see meditation not as like a self-improvement hack or anything like that, like a life hack, but as a path to love. And I just think that's such a beautiful way of thinking about it. And I would love for you to tell us more what you mean by this and how meditation is a path to love. Yeah, I appreciate that question. I was on Facebook or Instagram or something yesterday that somebody posted a cartoon of this this sort of Superman-y looking guy. I mean, he's wearing a suit and tie. Uh, but he said, I meditate 10 minutes a day so that I can conquer the world and be my best self. And there was like a, a, a image of a monk or something sitting in meditation behind him who said, meditate for an hour and you won't have to do any of those things. and that was really yeah so meditation especially in the buddhist tradition is famously associated with compassion there's no no question about that it's it's seen as a compassion tool and i just find that really interesting and one could ask oneself why how is it that sitting there doing nothing quote unquote is a path to compassion so, you know, that's an inscrutable question, but one possible answer could be as you sit in this particular form of meditation, you soften. You're not trying to get anywhere. You're not trying to change yourself. You're not trying to become a better leader or a better athlete or even become more patient and kind. You're, not tr- you're literally just sitting there allowing yourself to be who you are from moment to moment. And that's called gentleness. And when you sit with yourself in that way, minute after minute, month after month, year after year, whatever it might be, your a wall starts to come down around your heart. And you stop sort of saying, I wish you were this, I wish you were that. Or you keep saying those things, but you don't take it as seriously. And you become more vulnerable in that way. Your heart opens. And because you soften to yourself through this simple gesture of allowing, not through thinking I'm great or I'm totally lovable or anything like that, simply by softening toward yourself, you naturally soften to others. And you can feel more uh, acutely, greater with greater fidelity 
what's in your heart and what somebody else may be feeling. So that's how come one way of thinking, that's how come it's connected to compassion because it just opens you. And as such is a path to love of the highest order. And that's why I called my online community the Open Heart Project, as opposed to the Be More Awesome Project or the (laughs) Conquer the World Project, because that opening is everything. I feel like I am one of those people, now that you've met, you know, your your description of what meditation is for. This whole time I keep thinking I'm going to meditate so I can become a better leader. I can become a better father. I can become a better husband. It seems like that is completely the wrong way of approaching things. Those are excellent motivations and really good reasons to meditate. And you will, that it will work. But it's when you sit to meditate, it's important to let go of all of those things and to allow the path to take you as opposed to you dictating the next step of the path from moment to moment. And then it becomes quite magical. The more you can relax, the less you can try, the more you can just tune in, uh, the more likely it is that you will be a better husband, a better father, a better leader, because you'll have greater access to your own inner life, your own wisdom, your own heart. And that's the foundation for all of those things that you just said you want. Hmm. You know, Susan, I'm thinking about some of the criticisms we hear when we talk about self-love is that how is that going to serve others? How is that helpful for the masses if we're just all loving ourselves as if it's a really selfish thing? Mm -hmm. And I feel like what you are touching on is um, when we get to a place without that striving to be the better person, the better worker, that's where the self-love actually flows into others. And that's where it turns from being the selfish desires to the serving. Would that be what you're touching on? I think so. I I, I think so. But I would never call it selfish to attempt kindness toward yourself. You know, one way to think about it, and self-love in this in our context that we we are all talking about right now is not about going, you're awesome. You're great. Everything you do is fine. Or, Oh, poor baby. Or it's nothing like that. It's the self love is actually being with yourself. Like you would be with a friend. You don't tell Mm -hmm. them, I wish you were this way or that way. Or, you know, why are you thinking (laughs) about this? You should shut up. That's not, you're just with them. And if you are with a friend saying those things, you should maybe reevaluate that friendship. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. And so should they. (laughs) But uh, often, so one of the things that I find really interesting about the question of self-love, which by the way, I don't think you have to love yourself first before you can love others. I think someone, for me, it was the opposite. I loved myself when someone else loved me and I, I so anyway, it's it's an open channel in both directions. Mm-hmm. Um, we talk to ourselves usually with so much harshness. And, and that's not a big surprise, judging, criticizing, punishing, so forth and so on. And then when we get into relationships with other people, especially love relationships or romantic relationships, 
the closer we get, and it could be also be a creative partnership or a work relationship, the closer we get to someone else, the more the boundary between you and me starts to diffuse. Mm -hmm. So what you feel, I might also feel. And if you come in in a bad mood, that will change my mood. Or if I come in with a great idea and you like it, our energy lifts. And the boundary becomes a little per more permeable. And the closer you get, the less likely it is that you can tell what, it, who are you and who am I? What's coming from me and what's coming from you? And therefore, the more likely you are to talk to the other person the way you talk to yourself because they start to mix. And if the way you talk to yourself is harsh, that can easily morph into the way you talk to someone. And the closer you are, the more likely that is to happen, weirdly. So in the Buddhist view is one reason for the importance of working with that harshness and cultivating self-love is so that it, that is what will bleed over into the way you talk to others more than anything else. I resonated a lot with what you said about when, as like with me and Lindsay, we're married. Mm -hmm. And in the past, I've seen where I would come home from work feeling stressed out and in a bad mood. And it just bleeds into the family. Like Lindsay starts getting in the bad mood. The kids, the kids feel it too. Um, so I totally resonate with that. What are, how can that be prevented? How, how do we go about, you know, quote unquote, fixing this? Yeah, well, there, there are many ways and different things resonate with different people. I'm a meditation teacher, so I put forth meditation as one of the ways. Mm. I think it's a profound way. I think it's the, a direct, it's the direct path. It doesn't involve psychology. It doesn't involve, you know, anything, but you sitting there practicing this practicing being with yourself in this gentle way that then naturally, organically carries over to be a, a way of being with others with gentleness. So to me, it's like the most direct way to do that. Um, but anything you can do that cultivates inner awareness so that you know this is my mood or let me work mm -hmm. with this image I'm having of everything going to pot not because it that will prevent it from happening but because if i walk into my house with this darkness it will amplify so can i not let go of that because you don't want to be poly you know we can't we're not idiots that could be pollyanna she's always trying to think positive which is a big irritation for me when people say that but can yes. i just let it go or let it be and open my mind to what else might be happening in addition to my fears and darkness, which are hmm. totally human. I feel like all of us here have been really impacted by self-compassion work and learning how to um, practice that as for, I think I'd speak for all three of us. Um, it was pretty life-changing for us to even encounter that word and what that meant. Hmm. And we recently saw you. Um, on an Instagram video, we've been cyber stalking you as we do. <laughs> um, but we saw you discuss the idea that a lot of people feel like you have to love yourself first before you can be in a loving relationship. 
and that you need to work on yourself and heal yourself and that maybe you didn't agree with this idea and would you say that is almost an oppressive thing for people um, to say if you want to be in a loving relationship you actually have to do all this work first yeah I think I, I gotta say I think that's crazy I, I, I mm-hmm. think the crazy part is not you thinking you should do work on yourself so you can have healthier relationships that is not crazy that's fine mm-hmm. But the idea of I'm going to work on myself and banish all my bad thoughts and only have good thoughts so then I can attract, quote unquote, a loving relationship. Okay, on one hand, okay. But on the other hand, it's actually an act of aggression. Mm. When you hold that thought in such a way as you can't be this way, me, you have to be that way. And then you will be able to get something or someone who will prevent future unhappiness for you. That is not what I would call love. Right. It's Mm. and it's you're locking yourself in a little box. Love is so much more mysterious than that. And so much more unpredictable to think I'm going to re sequence my inner life so that I can get what I want, right? is just weird. You know, I see this a lot with uh, my clients. Um, I mostly see women and this kind of obsession and drive to self-improve so that we're acceptable, mm-hmm. so that we receive the love that we want is so pervasive. And it's just heartbreaking. Um, You know, we've all felt that, but also to, to be able to witness it firsthand um, people saying, if I do therapy, if I do my work, if I read this book, listen to this podcast, become this way, then I will be worthy of love. And so, so much of our podcast is about dispelling that myth Mm -hmm. um, because it really is, it, it really is a, like a bully, you know, this positive thinking bully, this, um, uh, like, like you said, the Pollyanna thinking uh, that isn't realistic. No. And, and there's, uh, I call it the positivity police, you know, <laughs> and, then, and then you become a positive positivity police person in your own mind. You're like patrolling and policing your inner life. And I, I personally, and I'm sure this is true for you guys too, I'm, I always wanted to be better at this or that. And I want to understand things more deeply. And I want to accomplish a lot. I'm very, I have a lot of ambition and, and drive. And, and I want to do a, a great job at whatever I do. I don't think, I, personally, I don't think there's anything wrong with those things. But where it becomes onerous is when you think, and then I will be happy. And then... Mm bad things won't be able to touch me, then I will be able to prevent suffering. No, Mm -hmm. those, that is not ever going to be true, ever. So but if you can approach what you love about yourself, what you don't love about yourself, with a kind of curiosity, and wouldn't, wouldn't it be more interesting if I could do it this way? Or would I have more joy if I could do it that way? To me, that's great. That's cool. But if it's, wouldn't I get, wouldn't I be safe and worthy, as you said, 
if I could be these things, that's a one-way ticket to nowhere. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very well said. Um, for our listeners, again, who haven't read your latest work, I would love it if you could just let us know what the four noble truths of love are. <laughs> yeah, I'd be happy to. I, I, I just would also like to say that I made them up. <laughs> these are not, the Buddha never said these things. What the Buddha did say was the four noble truths of, mm. around which the entire Buddhist path is based. And just very briefly, they state a truth. In this case, life is suffering or unsatisfying is a better sort of translation. Grasping causes the suffering. Number three, you can stop suffering because now you know how you started it. You can stop it. And the fourth is, here's how. So at one point in my own marriage, I've been married now for 20 years. And I was, you know, going up and down constantly, getting along, not getting along. And we went through a period where we couldn't get along at all for a long time. And it was horrible. And I remember I was just crying and thinking, I don't know where to begin fixing this. Maybe it's over. And a voice in my head said, begin at the beginning. At the beginning are four noble truths. So that meant something to me as a longtime Buddhist practitioner of about 25 years. Um, but then I was like, well, I don't get what that means. How could these truths apply to my love life? Anyway, here's what I came up with in answer to that. The first noble truth of relationships is that they never stabilize. They just don't stabilize. They're always going up and down and back and unpredictable and mysterious and good and bad. Nobody ever told me that. Oh, I always thought, well, we're going to get to some point where we're going to work out all the kinks and we'll be on some easier ride. And yeah, kinks get, definitely get worked out, but the ride is unpredictable. So it's kind of, it's uncomfortable, which is interesting because we usually look for relationships to make us comfortable, but they kind of don't. Right. And the second noble truth is thinking they should be comfortable actually makes them uncomfortable. If you give up that idea, well, I guess it's not ever going to stabilize. It's not, this is the ride. It's not going to be comfortable. It's going to be joyful. It could be horrifying. It could be boring. It could be, deeply satisfying, but it's not ever going to be stable. Well, that changes things. And the third noble truth is meeting the discomfort together or riding the instability together is love as opposed to, Hey, you, this is what you need to do to make me feel better. And I, this is what I'll do to make you feel more loved and so on. Those things are great. Not saying that those things are wrong. They're really, really important. But a great partner is one who will be on the ride by your side, as opposed to trying to get you both to be on a different ride. And mm. that is, uh, if you can find that, that's an amazing thing. And then the fourth noble truth is, here's how. And there are some qualities that are really important to bring to this view of relationships. And the first are the foundational qualities. Like what are the qualities that if you do not have them, you are not having a relationship. I mean, you could be having a love affair or something else, but 
if you don't have these things, I ask myself, what are those things that if you don't have them, you're not going to have a relationship? And the first one is honesty. Not, not, not skill, not blurting what you think honesty, but knowing what the truth is and then being skillful about how you choose to share it. If you can't do those things, are you with someone who can't do those things? Then you could have a lot of fun, but it'd be very hard to have a relationship. And the second foundational quality is good manners, which I know can sound superficial, but it isn't. Good manners are profound. They involve thinking about you and what you're experiencing and what you need and how life is treating you and what your day is like, and then making space for that. That if you can't, with someone who can't do that for you, who won't think of you, then again, the foundation of a relationship will not be there. And then the next quality is, and there are just two more. The next one is uh, to live your relationship as if the other person had at least equal importance to yourself in the relationship, which may sound obvious, and but it, it, it is quite extraordinary, and I say this from personal experience, how the deeper I get into my own relationships, the less it is about us and the more it can be about me. And mm. if to reestablish that balance of there's you, there's me, there's us is uh, extremely important. And then the final piece is to sort of give up on romance, not because you should, but because it gives up on you at some point. And it always ends that the romance, it can come back, but it'll go away again. But there's one thing that always can deepen. And that if you uh, apply yourself, as it were, it can last for your lifetime. And that is intimacy. So there's never a point you get to with another person of, okay, intimacy, we've covered that. We have shown you who I am and you've shown me who you are and we've deepened our connection. And no, those things can always take another step. So I found that heartening. I can commit to that. I can't commit to love, but I can commit to intimacy. And I, the last thing I want to say is this doesn't apply to relationships that include abuse or addiction. I don't want anyone to think, oh, some Buddhist lady said I should tolerate my discomfort when there are sources of discomfort that are beyond everyone's control and or place the whole thing in a different category. So I just do want to mention that. Absolutely. I feel like, I'm glad you said that, Susan. Um, I feel like when you think about most books on relationship, um, this is kind of opposite what you're telling us, you know, because so many, I mean, I've read all the counseling books on relationships and, and most of them are about how do you find your happiness here? How do you make this container of a relationship fulfill you? And so when you are talking about this, do you get a lot of backlash? Are people usually agreeing with this? Or do you feel like um, this is hard for people to swallow sometimes? Especially like the overachieving types, you know, the people who are, I want a plan. I want um, a 10-step program to make my relationship work, <laughs> you know? Right. 
Yeah, well, they're not going to read my book, probably. So, <laughs> not your people. Yeah, they might tell us not for me, yeah. which is totally, totally, totally fair. But I, it's interesting to me that most of the books about relationships, to me, the difference is they're about how to get love, how to make love come back, how to not lose love. Great, those are important things. But none of them are about how to give love. And I just find that very interesting. They're all about, as you say, how do I get what I want, which is totally fine. Everybody should know what they want and, and, and get what they want and, and not think that it's weird to want those things. But there's another piece here, which is how do I give? How do I love? How do I open myself? How do I create love for us? And that is rarely addressed. For some reason. <laughs> yeah. I think that's like, that's such an incredible insight. And as you were saying that, I was thinking maybe the fact that so many people or that we're kind of always thinking about how it is we can get love and we're not taught how it is we can give love is one of the reasons why it's hard for people to love themselves because they literally have to give love to themselves rather than go out there and get it from someone else. Well, that's a really good point. That's a really, really good point because it is a, sa a similar mechanism. And for whatever mm -hmm. reason, we're not exposed to that mechanism or that mechanism is not um, admired or cultivated or even remarked upon. And, and even in the backlash around, not backlash, but the resistance, I guess, to self-love, it is similar to what you're saying in that I feel like people resist it because they're it's almost like they're seeing it as this transactional thing like they have to get self-love in a way and they don't see it as a verb and a way of treating themselves they're like i'm gonna do all of these things so that i can arrive at this place where i have self-love as if it's a noun that you're trying to get rather than looking at it as a as a way of giving and, a, and an action and a verb. I totally think what you said is awesome and I totally completely agree. And, and I love that you use the word transactional because that is usually the mindset. I will do this so that I can get that. And there are certain things in our life that don't operate according to the transactional principles. Mm. Yeah. One of the other things that I wanted to touch on because I know you're a fan of the Enneagram. Yes. And yes. we all are, and Lindsay is particularly. <laughs> we all are. Yeah. are so, so I am a type seven. Mm -hmm. I'm a type one. Okay. <laughs> Classic two over here. Um, but I would just love to hear how you became interested in it and how this tool is also kind of useful as, I guess, a way of knowing ourselves better and, and hopefully that can lead to knowing yeah, how to, how to love ourselves better as well. Oh, the Enneagram is so important in that regard. I don't know how I became interested in it. It's been a very long time, also more than 20 years uh, that I've been mm. contemplating it and studying it. And for me, the weird thing about the Enneagram, I don't know about you guys, I never studied it. I, I read some books about it, and then it was suddenly it was a living body of wisdom in my own mind that just <laughs> yeah. completely I see the world through the lens now. And I'm a four. I never would have pegged myself as a four. And I'm a self-preservation four because there's three kinds of sevens, three kinds of twos, three kinds of ones, and so on. 
It's a very important distinction between those three types. I never would have pegged myself as a four until I read about self-preservation four when I thought, that is me. And so I saw these things that I had been angry at myself for, like what, like wanting so much aloneness, feeling so misunderstood and as if I was not making myself clear. And so I had some kind of problem with things I valued not being the same as the things other people valued. I took all that on as there's something wrong with me. But then I saw, oh, that's just the four nature. I suddenly softened toward myself. And I thought, well, that is just how I'm wired. It's like knowing you have this blood type or that blood type, it, it, or you know, we're born in this culture or that culture. It just informs. It's a roadmap to your particular energetic, whatever, uh, amalgam. And then in my own relationship, and I, my husband is a one, I, it, I don't know how I'd be in any relationship without the Enneagram, but especially marriage, because <laughs> the Enneagram is about what, where attention goes, among many other things. So when I walk into a situation, my attention goes to what does it mean? A one's attention may go to what it, what is right and what is wrong. What is correct? You're speaking is, my language here. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> what is correct and what is incorrect? And how, if it's incorrect, how can we make it correct? That's very different than what is meaningful. And a, a, if you're a two, your attention goes to who needs me or what can I offer? <laughs> What, Lindsay? Never. <laughs> Never. <laughs> and if you're seven, your attention is drawn to what is possible? What is possible here? And where, what else could we add to this to make it even more awesome? So there's an expansive view. So, okay, none of, there's nothing wrong with any of those four attitudes. But when I think everyone's attention goes to what's meaningful, but someone's attention is going to what is right, well, we're not going to be able to have a conversation. So I know that my husband, when we get in a fight, he is focused on who did what wrong. Okay, that's cool. I'm not focused on that. But if I can say to him, I see what went wrong, or I see what I did wrong, if I can confess some kind of wrongdoing that is accurate, not making shit up and stuff up, <laughs> but, but actually, yeah, I see where it went wrong, then it settles the conversation so that we can talk. But if I don't say that, and I'm very much over generalizing here, then we just get stuck in this loop of it's wrong, it's wrong, it's wrong. And so we can't go anywhere when we're stuck in that loop. So it's of unending value. I, I use it when I teach. I use it when I write. I use it. I use it every day of my life. Yeah. Do you guys? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's almost like uh, I feel like I need to learn the Enneagram better. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's almost like when I when I interact with people, I almost try to typecast which number they are <laughs> so based on. Which is very frowned upon. <laughs> very well, frowned upon. One but, but I do feel like. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I don't know. I feel like 
if I can kind of guess what their Enneagram number is, I can kind of say, okay, this is why they're doing what they're doing. Exactly. It makes sense to me. And this is how I could phrase what I have to say so that they could hear me. Yes, absolutely. I feel like in my therapy work, uh, I mean, this is a very egotistical thing I will share. I will confess <laughs> people who don't know the Enneagram and I'm able to kind of, you know, type them a little bit. I think you're they're probably this number. This looks consistent with this number. And I'll start saying things like, do you feel this way? Do you think this way? And they think I'm a magician. They're like, how do you know this? And I want to claim genius. And um, I have to usually confess. (laughs) Um, But I do think, you know, once people are, I think we are just, aren't really taught to be Mm self-aware. And to use the Enneagram as a tool for self-awareness, which I rejected for a long time. I thought like, it's just another tool. It's just another personality test. Yeah. But I think once I did finally embrace it as this is a really powerful tool to help people figure out why the way I think is different. This is how I express my individuality and knowing more about who I am and why I'm thinking this way and why others might not be thinking the way I'm thinking. Holy smokes, that just changes everything. I could not agree more. It really, really does. And yeah, it's endless, the Enneagram. It never stops deepening once you start paying attention to it it's different than everything else it it Mm -hmm. really is and i know you can't help but sort of type people but what i tell myself is i don't really know what type anyone is because that happens to be true but i can hear certain energies like oh there's the energy Mm -hmm. of seven here there's the energy of five and i try not to stick it on them but that, <laughs> nonetheless, if you, this is just uh, my advice, if you study the talking styles, you can hear the Enneagram everywhere because the talking styles mm-hmm. are very distinct. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's an extremely helpful tool. I think even when I talk to clients that identify as two, mm-hmm. um, not, not the ones that I have described, <laughs> that I've told them what they are. No, I, I never do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is instant bonding and connection. And it's so fascinating because they really feel more understood. Mm-hmm. And it's just a really interesting thing for me to experience and to see myself and how I think and view and what they're saying in their stories and their expressions um, has kind of been mind-blowing. I totally get it. It is kind of like having x-ray vision that you otherwise wouldn't have because, of course, naturally, you only know how to look at the world through your own lens. And so you naturally think this is the way other people look at things. But when you learn, oh, that's only one of the nine, one of the nine ways to look at things. Let me get mm-hmm. a little awareness of the other eight or the other eight. Mm-hmm. Then you have liberated yourself from enormous blind spots. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's the best. I think everyone should learn it. (laughs) Susan, do you ever feel like you read a book or listen to someone on a podcast or on TV, a show and can hear their talking point number? Like this person has to be a whatever. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Can you? 
yeah, I feel like um, sometimes, yeah, often I can. And when I do, I'm like, oh, this is why I get this person. This is why this particular author speaks so deeply to me. And this is why I hear this so deeply, you know. Yeah. I'm teaching a, a one-day online Enneagram workshop in a few weeks, which is I love doing. And at the end of the workshop, it's just one day, but at the end I have like 10 or 12 video clips that I show people and we try to guess what types the pe characters oh in the movies God. are. It's fun. This is my favorite game. <laughs> <laughs> I love that game too. <laughs> is this workshop posted anywhere? Susan? Yeah, it's on my website. I think it just got posted okay. actually. All right. I am excited to try it out. Oh, good. Yeah. That's my favorite. I love talking about it and listening to it and learning about it and seeing the light bulbs go off. You know, yeah. it's really. You're in good company here. We are Enneagram nerds. That's so awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <That's so great>. <laughs> <laughs> and I think what you said at the top around, um, it, it's just another way. For me, the link to, to self-love is also that acceptance of ah this is the way that I see the world and this is the way that I interact and you know the, the whole point of self-love is is to accept <laughs> your essential nature rather than try and change it and always berate yourself for how you're not doing things right or seeing things wrong so I think it's really beautiful to use it as a tool of just understanding and accepting who you are and how you see the world I think it it goes with the practice of compassion for exactly the reasons yeah. that you say. Yeah. So we want to be super respectful of your time. We've already taken a lot of it today. So thank you so much for being with us on this conversation. It has been so wonderful to hear all of your wisdom. I always love hearing you speak about relationships and compassion. And, yeah, self-love is a huge and a passion project for the three of us and so it's really lovely to talk about the ways that that plays in in our intimate relationships as well as our relationship with ourselves so thank you so much for being with us you're so welcome it was thank you, completely Suzanne. a pleasure to talk to all of you and thank you for the work you're doing in the world thanks everyone before we let you go we want to tell you about some exciting news for the you are infinitely loved team this summer, we will be holding some in-person events in Portland, Oregon. So if this is something that interests you, please come on over to our website at www.youareinfinitelyloved.com and sign up to our newsletter because we will be releasing all of the details very soon. We really hope to see you in person. That website again is www.youareinfinitelyloved.com. Thanks so much for listening to this episode.